0: Hi, listeners, this is Lila. A quick announcement that next week we are going to start publishing on Fridays instead of Saturdays, just to get you into the weekend spirit a little earlier. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the show. The producer Kathy Schulman has made a lot of movies. She was part of the team behind Paul Haggis's film Crash from 2004, which won three Academy Awards. She was executive producer on Mike Mills' Thumbsucker, She's worked with Angela Bassett, Patricia Arquette, Jackie Chan, Charlize Theron, Ryan Reynolds. You get the idea. But when she was in her late 40s, Kathy decided to go back to school. She had done a lot of advocacy for women in film. And she wanted to find a way to talk about diversity in her industry as something that wasn't just good politics,
1: but also good business. So the very first thing as an academic I did was look for the original statistics that proved that we should be making movies for men and boys. And, and by the way, I was taught that as an emerging producer, as an emerging executive, it came out of my own mouth many of times. Let's first figure out that how the boys and the men or the boys or the men are going to come and then we'll add additional demos.
0: Wow, really? Sorry to be totally naive, but that's how the film industry was making movies was how is this going to appeal
1: to men and boys first. And then once that's figured out, you then you understand. add additional demos. Yeah. Wow. And that's because that was what the research said, supposedly. So the very first thing I did was go to read that research. Guess what? No research. <laughs> really, it never yeah. existed. I asked all of your listeners on planet earth to find that piece <laughs> of research and it does not exist.
0: That's Kathy talking to me on zoom last week. She's been promoting her recent film, The Woman King, which is basically the opposite of a production meant to appeal to men and boys first, especially white men and boys first. The Woman King is a sprawling blockbuster and it has tons of action, but the action scenes feature an all-woman army led by Academy Award winner Viola Davis, which means it's led by a dark-skinned Black woman who's middle-aged, not exactly Hollywood's traditional hero.
1: I mean, and it's funny because, you know, Viola, who was 56 when we made this as was I and we're old friends we've been friends for almost 20 years and um, she said am I crazy you know like I'm gonna try (laughs) to do this at 56 years old but we were like I was like well we better do it fast because God (laughs) knows we're not doing it at 60. I
0: wanted to talk to Kathy because The Woman King is exactly the kind of movie that we're always told is nearly impossible to make but she and her team made it happen and it's proved to be this massive success. It's dominated the box office, it's being floated as an Oscar contender. And I was curious, behind the scenes, what does that take? Then, I speak to my colleague Amico Terrazono, who's been covering the rise and fall of plant-based meat. A few years ago, the Impossible Burger was meant to be the future of sustainable food. Amico tells us where we are now. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Before Kathy and I get into it, here is what you should know about The Woman King. It's a stunning two-hour and 15-minute epic about the Dahomey Kingdom, which is a real kingdom in West Africa that existed in what's modern-day Benin. The movie is set in the 1820s, and the women warriors of the Dahomey Kingdom, called the Agoji, are fighting their neighbors, the Oyo Empire. But the Oyo are abducting and selling people into the transatlantic slave trade. So the story is also about resisting colonialism. Welcome the strongest warriors in Africa. The king does not allow us to look upon the (laughs) agoji. They do not know an evil is coming. They know you will protect them. The other thing you should know is that The Woman King took a lot longer to make than most action movies. Kathy started pitching it in 2016. Viola Davis came on board soon after as a producer and a star. And then it didn't get funding from Sony TriStar until 2020. The film is directed by Gina Prince-Bythewood, also a Black woman. You might know her previous films like the classic Love and Basketball, Old Guard, and The Secret Life of Bees*. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having
0: me. So my big question for a movie like The Woman King, which is so groundbreaking, is sort of how do you get something like this made? But before we get to that, I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us about the role you had in the film as a producer. I think there's a lot of confusion for people about what producers do, and there's so many things producers do. Can you kind of walk me through it?
1: Yeah, well, that's a funny place to start because my own mother doesn't know what producers do. And I've been doing <laughs> for 35 years. The way I like to talk about producing is you're really responsible for everything from turning the lights on to turning them off. Mm-hmm. And in that period of time, which generally ranges from about four years to 10 years, um, you pretty much vision keep the whole thing. And in the case of this particular project, The Woman King, a friend of mine, Maria Bello, went to Benin. On a trip, and she was able to visit what was becoming the Agogia Museum in Dahomey, Mm -hmm. which is basically a tribute to the women warriors of this culture. And she came back and she told me the story that there had been this army of women who were not only an army of women, but they were also victorious time and time again. And they Mm -hmm. were victorious against men and without guns. And I thought, there's a movie in this. And it was like I had landed on a gold mine. (laughs) How was it possible that a story like this hadn't been told? And that was in, um, let's see, 2016. So Okay,
0: that's a long time ago. Yeah, 2016. Here's how Kathy pitched the movie to funders. She said it would be a totally new kind
1: of film, like
0: nothing they'd ever seen, and that it would intentionally appeal to women. All women, but women of color in particular.
1: Because women do, in fact, buy 70% of all content, film, television, and streaming, and diverse women over-index. It shouldn't even surprise people that much because, frankly, women buy more of everything. Women also (laughs) buy more cars and more electronics and and in the case of content in an extreme way. So also, what about a heroic action movie for women, specifically targeting women who over-index, Black women, Diverse women, Mm -hmm. a movie about sisterhood, which everybody's craving, in combination with a relief from the comic book movies. Kathy actually told funders that
0: the Woman King would not use the kind of special effects you see in comic book movies. Instead, the Warriors would only do what was physically possible, only what they could train for, which is what eventually happened. Viola Davis and her co stars trained intensely for months to become fighters. And
1: the pitch worked. Well, sort of. It got interest. You know, the first time I tried pitching this movie, um, I was an executive. I was actually the president of production at STX. So I went to my colleagues who are actually my bosses. Somehow you're the president of production and there's still white men above you. <laughs> but anyway, I went to say tell my colleagues that, you know, I had this idea for a movie and I pitched my sort of heart and soul about what I thought it could be. And my colleagues said, yeah, that does sound interesting. Could you make it for $5 million? <laughs> okay. We couldn't have made one battle scene for $5 million.
0: For context, the budget on big superhero movies is more like two dollars or $300 million. At the mid-tier level, for historical epics, a movie like this year's The Norseman cost about $70 million. In the meantime, something else happened that helped The Woman King along. Black Panther was released in 2018. And it actually used the Agoji warriors as an inspiration for the all-women personal bodyguards of the King of Wakanda.
1: Ah! Wakanda forever. Ah! Come on! The Black Panther opened up a lot of doors for us, you know, and proved a certain audience. And I thought, well, if the Black Panther. Ask the audience to imagine an African nation with agency. How about actually telling the story of an African nation with agency that was true? Mm. You know, and that really was like a click, I think, you know, for for buyers. But it's hard. It takes a whole lifetime of of work and, you know, credibility to convince anybody. And I'm still kind of amazed we did.
0: In the end, the budget for The Woman King came in at 50 million dollars. Shooting was set for South Africa, where the money would stretch further. And the team included three female leads, a female cinematographer, Polly Morgan, as well as a female director. Katya, I'm curious about, you know, I know you've been very active in driving gender parity and diversity in Hollywood. Um, You were the director of Women in Film. Your own production company is about that. If I were to ask you how hard it was to make this film compared to other movies you made, what would you
1: say? Well, I mean, I actually think that this film is kind of the culmination of the Mm -hmm. other movies I've made. I don't think it could have been made anytime sooner. It was enormously difficult, but all of my movies for the most part are about race and class and gender. So they're always kind of an uphill climb, Mm -hmm. but I do think that because the movies I've made about race, class, gender, and the various stages in women's lives, including motherhood, otherhood, grandmotherhood, mm-hmm. all the different things that I've worked on, bad moms, good moms, all the different things. <laughs> I think that, you know, its potential grew out of the years of making content by and for women combined with activism and education of the marketplace. But that said, it was still enormously difficult because it was physically difficult. So besides getting it made, You know, we had a big, giant crew of women, um, for the most part, you know, up in the jungles of, you know, KwaZulu-Natal, which is in sort of the Eastern Cape of South Africa. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty intense. I mean, we didn't have working phones. We didn't have working Internet. We didn't have roads Um, It rained a lot. There were bugs. There was a hippo attack. There was like all sorts of (laughs) things. I'm not even exaggerating. Like all the way through, spiders, stomach viruses, you know. So Mm -hmm. when I think back on it now, I'm kind of amazed that like we did it. When it rains, our ancestors weep for the pain we have felt in the dark hulls of ships bound for distant shores.
0: When the wind blows push us to march into Kathy, the- you know, one of the most extraordinary parts of watching that film to me are just watching women be warriors. And like they were just strong and they walked strong. And there was a lot of unity between them, even in the battle scenes. And it was one of those things where you watch them and you don't know why it's like <laughs> powerful to you until you kind of realize like, oh, I'm usually bored by fight scenes. But there's something about these fight scenes, these action scenes that are different and that make me want to watch it. And I guess my question is like,
1: how did you do it? What were the conversations behind it? There were two major components. One is strategy. So women were going to have to depend on intellectual strategy to outsmart their foes for two reasons. One, they were male, but secondly, they were, it was a much huger army, the Oyo battle, which is the big battle in the center of the movie it's a David and Goliath battle, you know, they're much, much smaller, smaller troops. And I think, you know, there's a line in the movie that very much describes our strategy, which is, you know, be careful for the mouse that takes down the elephant, Mm -hmm. you know, and the, the concept being the mouse can scurry around and do all sorts of, you know, mysterious things while the elephant can't see what's happening. But more importantly, I think the reason why you felt emotionally connected to the battle scenes is because, we were very specific that no character in the movie does anything in the action sequence unless it pushes their character's arcs further. Mm-hmm. So for example, you've learned that Nai doesn't think a rope is a weapon, so she's right. going to kill her aggressor with a rope. So each and every time that you're watching something happen, you're supposed to be, and we hope you are, are motivated not only in the kill but much more so in the arc of the character.
0: Kathy, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is just how you make choices around stories that are based on histories that like, are real and complicated. I know there's been some criticism of the movie in how it portrays the Dahomey's role in the transatlantic slave trade. And how do you weigh that stuff ahead of time?
1: Yeah, um... You know, historical fiction is a choice. And the reason why I like it versus documentary is that it allows you to create, you know, propulsive narratives. And I actually think that propulsive narratives engage audiences of all types, whereas documentary tends to be more of an intellectual pursuit. I wish it weren't, but I think documentary, you know, filmmaking, you know, doesn't engage as wide De- as, as many demos, you know, as narrative film does. So I, I really like it. And I, I also think that, you know, there's a reason that we choose to paint a painting versus take a photograph, which is that it allows some inter- interpretation, you know, the eye. But once we decided, you know, to work, you know, within, you know, historical fiction, you know, you have to start with resource material and research you know everything you possibly can but once we had done that the crucial thing was to find scholars you know who were specializing now today in this history the criticism that happened afterwards is kind of you know the first thing i always say is why don't you watch the movie before you criticize it because we do talk about it mm-hmm. and then the agogia represent the faction of people who were in fact you know against the continuation of the sort of cycle of enslavement and that was a very real thing at the time. And King Gezzo was very much engaged in that debate. So our heroes represent the movement away from enslavement and others in the story represent the opposite and you see them both. And mm-hmm. so the way we use, you know, the the fictional aspect to deal with the real importance of the issue was to come up with sort of the good guys and the bad guys, essentially, you know, to illustrate the issues, you know, around it. So, you know, we knew that it was going to be an issue. And by the way, it should be an issue. Kathy, my last question, I have to ask, why do you think it's still
0: so hard to make a movie like this in 2022?
1: There's some kind of a rooted bias in Hollywood that diverse people don't come to the movies And secondarily, that non-diverse people don't want to see diverse people on screen. And the combination has been sort of lethal uh, to making movies that deal with diverse people in front of the camera. And, And frankly, we've had a real problem with storytellers behind the camera, writers and directors. We're making some progress and that's what all the activism is about. But that rooted bias made a movie like this such an outlier that there were many, many no's before there was a yes. The part that makes me happy is that there was a yes. have made progress if a major motion picture studio did this. And furthermore, the executive who drove the train internally is a Black woman, Nicole Brown. So it also proves that when you include Diverse women, diverse people around a decision-making table, the trickle-down effect is enormous.
0: Um, Kathy, this was such a pleasure. So thought-provoking. Thank you for being on the show.
1: It's been such a pleasure. What an interesting conversation. Um, Thanks for having me.
0: A few years ago, a new phenomenon hit the food market.
2: Introducing the impossible Whopper with a patty made from plants, no beef. No beef. I've never had plant taste like beef before. Tastes like a Whopper? Tastes like Whopper, tastes like a beef burger.
1: Lie!
0: I'm talking about plant-based meat. You just heard a 2018 Burger King ad for the Impossible Whopper. Do you remember when the Impossible Burger first showed up? It was everywhere. People were excited for a vegetarian option to meat that claimed to taste like meat. It felt like finally there
2: was a solution.
0: My colleague, Amico Terrazono, our commodities correspondent, has been covering plant based meat for a long time.
2: Increased meat eating has, has been one of the big issues surrounding food and climate change, livestock belching out methane, the use of soybeans and industrialized crops used to feed these animals. It's, it's been something, you know, if you're a meat eater, something that does weigh on you. Yeah. And um, all of a sudden, these guys seemingly had an, an answer.
0: I asked Amiko onto the show because I had this question. What happened to that answer? Plant-based meat has disappeared from ads. It's rarely in the news. Was it successfully absorbed into our daily lives? Or was it just a fad? Amika, thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show. Hi, Lala. So um, a few years ago, I feel like talk of plant-based meat was like everywhere, like nice restaurants were putting it on their menus Mm -hmm. and Burger King came out with an impossible burger and it was supposed to be the future. But it feels a little to me like the hype is over. Maybe it's gotten as big as it's going to get and was just a blip. I guess my first question is, you know, you've been reporting on this all the way through. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's
2: true? I think the excitement around it is over. The novelty factor is definitely worn off. Yeah. Um, our coverage around plant-based meat has essentially been about growth. And so I think initially when this whole um, plant-based meat trend blew up, a lot of the the companies and startups behind it had seen, you know, consumers sort of rushing to it and annual growth of 20, 30, 40 percent, and they were hoping that would continue. But that's definitely worn off.
0: So what is plant-based meat? You've maybe heard of vegetarian pulled pork or plant burgers, but what's in it?
2: It's made from powdered protein from so-called quote-unquote plants, i.e. things like yellow peas and soybeans. Sometimes it's got rice. Impossible Foods, for instance, has a special ingredient called heme, which it claims that it's the backbone of, of the meaty flavor.
0: And what is that made of?
2: It's plant-based hemoglobin. So mm-hmm. it's it's that kind of irony taste, you know, that you have with meat. It uses its own technique to create that. Yeah. Some plant-based burgers, quote-unquote, bleed. Right. Um, <laughs> beyond, I think, uses beetroot juice. To solve the
0: mystery of why plant-based meat lost its popularity, we need to go back to when it first hit the market. And the goal was for it to be something not just for vegetarians, right? Like it would be so good that meat eaters would also crave it?
2: That's right. Yeah. So the term flexitarian has been around, you know, it predates plant-based meat. But it really came under the spotlight because the aim of, of these companies was to get the Flexitarians um, start eating plant based meat instead of real meat and get the meat eaters on side. And so the boom really started in about 2018, 19. And then the pandemic hit. Right. And during the pandemic, people were looking for things that they could store in their freezers or in their cupboards. You had this huge sales surge and people had stocked up. You know, they had stocked up so much that. They didn't really need to go out and buy more. The other big issue was because of the pandemic, you couldn't go out and trial things. One of the things with new foods is that you need to give people samples and you know you have you have stores set up in, in supermarkets and get pe- getting people to try it. And you didn't have that opportunity. So that really hampered sales as well.
0: The other problem is that consumer sentiment changed. Deloitte did a survey recently and found that there has been a decline in people's belief that plant-based meat is actually healthier. Because the things that make it seem like meat also make it considered ultra-processed, like hot dogs and chicken nuggets.
2: It is quite processed, isn't it? I mean, from yeah. that point of view. Whether it's actively harmful or not, I, don't, I think that's a bit controversial. And then there's the
0: most important part, the matter of taste. Amiko remembers going to her first plant-based meat expo. She tried a bunch of stuff.
2: There was a huge range of things like um, salamis and burgers and chicken and mushroom-based beef bourguignon. I really wanted to like them. And I took some home and you you try it later and you have to ask yourself, do I see myself going to the shop buying this? And the answer, sadly, was no. Ultimately, what's hurting plant-based meat is that it just doesn't taste like meat. Well, mm. it does taste like meat, it, it, but it doesn't taste like a juicy burger. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's a derivative product, isn't it? If you're going to eat a burger, if you're a meat eater and you're going to eat a burger once a month, say, would you eat a real burger or would you eat a plant-based burger?
0: Right. It's not really something you crave.
2: Right. And the other issue is that it's really expensive. Mm. So in America, a pound of plant-based Beyond Meat product costs $8.35 mm-hmm. compared to real ground beef, which is at half the price at around $4.90. So, yeah,
0: it's a big difference.
2: Big difference.
0: Yeah, especially with inflation.
2: Yeah, and now with you know people's wallets being affected, cost of living, and also on the plant-based meat side, you have huge ingredient costs um, increases as well. So um, that's only going to get worse.
0: Here's the bottom line. Plant-based meat can't succeed unless it wins over meat eaters. Even if vegetarians take to it, the rest of us still eat too much meat for that to make a substantial dent. That said, these companies still seem to have pushed our conversation about meat and sustainability forward culturally. And they're now pouring millions of dollars into research and development to make it better. It feels to me like the plant-based meat conversation and fad and whatever a few years ago and even burger king i remember when burger king adopted like an impossible whopper thinking i never thought that burger king would provide a plant-based option and now it's just normal so there's a part of me that wonders whether like it shifted the way we think about eating meat long term or that and the environmental crisis have shifted that for us and so i don't know this can't be the end of the road for it right
2: no no, I think you're absolutely right, and it's it's definitely sort of changed the way people view meat and food mm-hmm. it's introduced the so whole concept of sustainability around meat mm. and so even people who weren't aware of it I think has sort of become you know have become aware of it
0: yeah uh, Amiko I'm curious like what other developments are on the horizon you wrote in one of your pieces and we'll put um, them both in the show notes, but you wrote about the commercial launch of meats made from cow and pig and chicken cells that are grown in vats, um, that that's coming. Um, yeah. Can you tell me about that and whether you think people will be comfortable with that?
2: Yeah, I think the so-called lab, quote-unquote, lab-grown meat, um, they're actually not grown in labs, as you uh, but as you say, they're grown in vats. Mm-hmm. I think people are curious to try, like how they were towards plant-based meats, but the problem is it's just not hitting markets. It's right. very difficult to scale.
0: Amika, this is so interesting. Can I ask, you know, my last question is really, what do you think is the most interesting question around this? As you're reporting on it, like, are there things that you're looking out for?
2: I think I really want it to work.
0: Mm. And
2: um, I just am looking out for the the new um, innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think taste for me is really important. So... Mm-hmm. If there's something so delicious that I can't, I can't resist. Then I'd be delighted to eat it. Yeah. Um, and if that is affordable, then even better.
0: Yeah, uh, Amico, this was so fascinating. Thank you so much for being on the show.
2: Lila, it was a pleasure.
0: That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next weekend, we have another great film guest, Ruben Ostland. He is the director of Triangle of Sadness, which is the winner of this year's Palme d'Or at Cannes. We also talk about how airlines are competing to provide their first-class customers with the fanciest foods they possibly can to keep them buying flights. It's a good episode. A reminder that next weekend we will be publishing on Fridays... I hope you enjoy the extra day. And that we are doing a bonus four part series starting this Wednesday all about travel. If you want to say hi, we love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can keep up with behind the scenes content about the show on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT. I get FT Weekend every Saturday in print, and I read it at my coffee shop. That could also be you, and not for that much. The offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. Last thing, the FT has a new app called FT Edit. It features eight pieces of in-depth journalism a day, handpicked by senior editors, and is actually a really good deal and a manageable amount of content if you want to just get a sense of what the FT is like. It is free for a month and then 99 cents for six months after that. It's available now for iPhone users. Just search FT Edit in the App Store. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my exceptional team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko. with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And special thanks, as always, goes to Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll find each other again next week.